you guys? Welcome to Ratchet Dojo Radio. I am your host, Ro The Show. In this podcast, we're going to take you down, pass your guard, and then steal your girl. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, you guys. Welcome to Ratchet Dojo Radio. I am your host, Row the show. If this is your first time listening and you are wondering what this podcast is about, this podcast is all about jujitsu and everything that revolves around it. Before I introduce to you our guests of the evening, I have to do some housekeeping. So first, if you like this podcast and you're getting something out of it, please tell one of your BJJ friends about it. And please hit that subscribe button. We are dropping new content every Monday and Wednesday and you do not want to miss them. Mondays, we have our Ratchet Roundtable, and we talk about our experiences moving up the ranks. We offer you advice that may help you in your pursuit of black belt. Wednesdays, we talk to our Ratchet experts that are also jujitsu practitioners and offer you advice in their chosen field of work. So you do not want to miss these. Second, and this is how we pay the bills. Please go to ratchetdojo.com and support the cause by purchasing your limited edition t-shirts for only $25. And now, welcome to Ratchet Dojo. All right, guys, tonight, as always, we are joined by one of my co-hosts uh, tonight, Jay Machiavelli. How you doing, Mac? Yo, yo, make it do what it do, babe, bro. <laughs> the Mac Daddy of all Mac Daddies. And tonight, you guys, our guest of the evening, he is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt an ADCC bronze medalist, a five-time Eddie Bravo Invitational Champion, and he is currently an undefeated MMA fighter for one championship. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary, the lion killer, Tonin. I just want to set the stage for everybody real quick so they know how I just heard everything you just said. Everything you just said to introduce me. Behind it, I was hearing a little drum roll, you know, like a little... <laughs> me too. I was you. hearing the same thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want everybody you know. to experience it that way because I feel like it was better. <laughs> How you doing, guys? Doing good, man. Yeah. Thanks for having Very me on. well. Thank you. Okay. And uh, for our listeners, just to let you know that we are recording at home due to the quarantine. So if you do hear J-Mac making a lot of noise in the background, it's just because he's dealing with a lot of, uh, you know, daddy stuff at home. So just wanted to give you guys a heads up. All right. Baby girl's in the tub right now. You might hear me yell occasionally. You might hear me tell the dog to shut the F up. It's part of the process. <laughs> I love my dog. Maybe a couple, maybe a couple of smacks, but don't worry, they're not with a close fist. It's fine. <laughs> Yo, Gary, I always say that, like you know, there's there's a few different types of slaps, right? There's the infamous jab slap, the back slip, split a lip slap, and the what did I tell you slap, right? So you know, they they, they sort of graduate accordingly, right? They, so, they all have their yeah. they all have their place, you know. <laughs> all right, so you guys seem to know each other fairly well. Uh, so can you guys tell me how you guys met? Actually, I, you know, like I'm more of a fan than than I am like like Gary is a rock star, right? And you know, so I trained at Henzo's for a long time under John Danaher, and you know, uh, when I was on the way, you know, sort of 
transitioning from jujitsu to uh, to Thai boxing with Joe, you know, I would go down in the blue basement and just sort of check in and, you know, see what was happening. You know, I'm bumping to Gary all the time. And, you know, I think that he was still, you know, he was always a stud, right? But I think that he still hadn't gotten to rock star status. But like me being the genius that I am, the stable genius that I am, you know, I recognized his talent and, you know, just kind of watched him from afar. But yeah, so we don't really like know each other where we've broken bread together, you know, but, you know, again, me just sort of being, you know, like having a man crush on him, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean, I used to see, I used to see Jay around Henzo's, used to see him at like, you know, some of the local competitions and stuff as well, you know, so we're familiar, but it's like he said, you know, we don't have like a, like a super close relationship or anything, you know, just bounce around and, uh, and uh, yeah. It's probably for the best, uh, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, how are you guys doing as far as uh, your quarantine, Miss uh, Gary? I'm freaking out, man. I can't take this shit. I'm, uh, dude. I'd love to just tell you, like, oh yeah, it's been it's been fine. Like I'm good. I'm just relaxing. But like, man, every morning I wake up and I'm like, oh my god. I'm like, it's all gonna be over, right? Like it's all going to be back to normal. And then it's like, it almost feels like it gets worse every day. <laughs> and uh, where, where are you, where are you uh, residing these days? Uh, it's the caucus, New Jersey. So I'm like 30 minutes door to door from Henzo's, probably 20 minutes door to door to Penn Station. Uh, you just get, hop on, the, we're the last stop before you get into New York City in New Jersey. Uh, how close is the nearest Walmart to you? Because J-Mac wants to- Nearest Walmart? What's that? Because J-Mac wants to visit again. Yo, he's making a joke because I had an incident recently at Walmart where this guy tried to kill me. And I had to put down a switchblade on him, you know? Oh, man. Oh, it was like like fucking World War Z up in there. Jesus, dude. (laughs) Anyway, so just for for our listeners, uh, Gary, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as far as uh, how'd you get started in jujitsu and so on? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was, uh, as a kid, I wasn't really allowed to do contact sports. My mom just kind of uh, wasn't into it. She was, thought it was too dangerous. She worked at a, a children's hospital for uh, kids with special needs. And she got to see like a lot of traumatic brain injuries and things. And I think she just got scared of the whole idea of her son getting hurt, you know. So I, I kind of, uh, I was doing lots of sports, but it was like baseball and things like that. And um Finally, my cousins like got involved in wrestling. Uh, they lived in New, uh, in Pennsylvania, and my mom, because she had heard they did well with that, nobody died. You know, she's like, "Oh, maybe his wrestling would be good for you. You got ADHD, get some energy out." So I started doing that. Um, she's cool with that for a bit, and I meet somebody a few years later, probably about four or five years later, who's telling me about this jujitsu stuff that he does. And we were like fourteen at the time. And the kid's like, oh my God, like, you know, we, we fucking strangle each other. We break each other's arms. You know, it's the coolest shit ever. It's like UFC. And like, I don't even know what UFC is. I'm like, what do you, you, you mean like WWE? Like you guys are like, you know, that's fake, right? Like you can't break people's arms and strangle each other. You're 14 years old. Who in their right mind would allow you to do that? So I finally go in and I, I check out a class and, uh, I'm like, wow, this is real. You know, I was super excited to do it, but my mom was just not about it at all you know so i had to have her like thoroughly brainwashed by my friend's uh by my friend's father and like over weeks after weeks because he's a talker that guy his name's scott trout he (laughs) he wore down and eventually convinced her to let me start so i guess i have him to thank for uh no him and his son chris for uh helping me uh find find jujitsu right 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 and then how did you end up in um i guess with the death squad 
So uh, when I first started doing jujitsu, I was just introduced in a little MMA program, and we, I wasn't doing it all the time. I knew I really liked it. But it was far from my house. I was only 14. I couldn't get there without my mom. It made it pretty difficult. So uh, for multiple reasons, I ended up quitting there after a few months. And in the interim, a few months later, I found uh, Tom DeBlas' academy around uh, age 15. Uh, he had some posts, posts up in the local gym that I went to. You know, So I was working out with my buddy. We both saw it, and we, we checked it out. So uh, when I got to Tom's, it was a totally different experience. You know, jiu-jitsu, just a pure jiu-jitsu school, seven days a week. You know, that's all they're teaching. And uh, I just I was so excited to learn. And, and I took a few classes from him, and I learned more there in a week than I had learned like in months at the other place. And I was just so uh, fascinated by this intelligent approach to grappling because everything I experienced in wrestling was just like move faster and harder to get a better result. Like do that double leg harder, you know, go do another rep. Right. And uh, the only thing that, that was the only thing that was praised. These guys were just excited to see you sweat. You know, they didn't really give a shit whether you did the double right or what the technique or the strategy was behind it. You know, weren't taught any of that shit. So uh, I get to jujitsu and there's this whole, like, at least the way that Tom had thought at the time, like there's this whole other layer of like ways to think about, you know, a, a sport and a martial art. And I'm like, wow, this is really cerebral. So it was like engaging at an intelligent level instead of just a sport. And another thing was, is like Tom, the blast led like a really good example because he owned school. He was a younger guy. He was also competing at the highest level and, and doing really well. So I was like, wow, like that, that's something that I could be proud of one day. Like I'm interested this, in this and like, maybe I could do that too. Like maybe I could own a school. Maybe I could do this. So I took, uh, I took, I came under his wing pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, he, he brought me right up until pretty much a little bit before black belt. I was ma- mainly just trained by Tom, probably like all the way up till my brown belt uh, days. And then I started be I started bouncing around a little bit, but uh, yeah, then then I got my black belt from Tom, and right around when I got my black belt from Tom was was around the same time that uh, I had started kind of going the Dana Hirsch classes more. You know, I was pretty much in the city, like getting in the city kind of full time. I got introduced to John through Frankie Edgar. Frankie Edgar was training at Henzo's a little bit. I forget which fight he was preparing for, maybe BJ or something, and. Uh, he was getting ready for the fight, uh, and he a lot of the pro MMA guys trained up at Henzo's on Mondays. So he would go over there, and I heard he was going to that training session. And I think I just conned my way into getting there. You know, I'm like, hey, Frankie, I heard you. You know, and they'd be driving up. He's like, yeah, sure, we'll pick you up on the way. Just meet us. You know. So uh, yeah, he brought us. He brought me in my first few sessions at Henzo's. Met John, and then you know, it took a while to build a relationship with him, but. Um, eventually kind of, I started to settle in and, and he started to settle in as my, you know, my, my new instructor, right. you know, because I wasn't, I was no longer able to go back down South and train under, you know, Tom. Got it. And what do you think was the difference between, you know, training under Tom DeBlas and John Danaher? Oh, it was just different approaches to the sport. You know, Tom was, uh, you know, Danaher is, uh, in like, it's like an academic you know, in the sport. And at the same time, like he's super tough. Like, you know, there's tons of stories that, you know, not, o- not only he tells, but other people tell about like him kicking ass back in the day, like, you know, people coming through and, you know, John really, really causing problems for them and submitting them a bunch of times and making people like world champions frustrated. So don't get me wrong. It's not like he wasn't good as well as cerebral, but what, what I'm saying is, is like Tom came from the, you know, time came from the, uh, the actual competition scene. So right, right. the difference was, is like, I kind of, 
I got a sense, I got a sense from the very beginning with Tom, like about, you know, the strategic, the strategy behind like competition and things and like, you know, how to work hard and things and just be like a competitor and all these types of things that, you know, are kind of like on the back burner, you know, more for John, like John is more about like, Hey, like we're going to work on our technique and we're going to get better at, at what we're doing here. Um, but the, the other part is kind of like, we should already have that. You know what I mean? And it's like, you should already have a routine. Basically, by the time you get to John, like if you're really going to receive the information that he's giving you properly, you already have to have adapted to be like somewhat professional. Right, right. You know what I yeah, mean? John doesn't even bother with the warm-ups. He's just like, yeah, get in there. But I, I feel like there was something about, you know, Matt Sarah and GSP that kind of changed his mindset around competition and yeah. around fighting that sort of, you know, made him kind of look at what it uh, meant to be a competitor, an active fighter, you yeah. know, uh, whether it be sure. on the scene or MMA scene, whereas sure. before he exclusively an academic. And I could be wrong with this, right? I'm not saying that I've, you know. Sure. Yeah, I mean, he was involved, like, in competition in the sense that, like, you know, he was a, one of George's coaches and things. And, like, so he had been involved in, you know, coaching, like, you know, high-level competitors. But it's just, it was a little different because Tom was coming from the perspective of the high-level high competitor. Correct. You know what I mean? Where John is coming from the perspective of, hey, I'm going to be the best coach that I could possibly be in the world. And that's that's all he's ever been doing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm going to improve my own jujitsu, but my main goal is I want to be able to effectively change this sport. Yeah, through I mean, teaching. I can totally, right. I, I totally get that because uh, being being under Marcelo Garcia's uh, academy for so many years, you know, his perspective and, for example, Paul Schreiner's perspective, who is our is very similar to me as uh, John Danaher, even though I have never took a class from John Danaher, but uh, it's equivalent sure. to that. So it's like Marcelo's approach is always the same, which is like, you know, be aggressive, give up nothing. And then Paul will give you this like completely different perspective of life, life and quantum physics. <laughs> and before you know it, I'm like, oh shit, you know, my mind is blown. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, it's just, it's different, right? Like, yeah. like there, there were two different goals and like, sure, you know, Tom took on the role as my instructor and, and he taught students, but it's come, it's just coming from a very different perspective. You okay. know what I mean? Even though they're both coaches, it's just, it's just very different. Right. You know, like another thing is too, is like John never had to focus on a, like making sure brand new students stay in his class. You know what I mean? Where like, that's a part of running a jiu-jitsu business. You know what I mean? That Tom has to pay attention to. And most mm -hmm. guys that like Marcelo would have to pay attention to like, Oh dude, like we got to retain students. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? We have to run like basic classes or, you know, we got to like treat these, these students a particular way. Whereas like, dude, when you walk into, you walk into John's class, it's like, you're already expected to be, to be committed. So it's just fire and hell right from the very beginning. There's no like pass on the back <laughs> and like, you know, being nice to anybody to try to get him to hang around. He doesn't have to do that because he's not running a school. You know what I mean? He's, right. he's just teaching. So he can be a complete purist and just be like, well, you know what? Yeah, I'm gonna probably gonna lose quite a few students because I tell them they're a fucking retard for not using the correct arm for the Kimura. Probably gonna lose some students that way, but it's also at the same time gonna raise this room to the highest level that it could possibly be. And that's all he had to think about. Mm. You know what I mean? So, so that's like that's like one of the differences I would say. Yeah, totally. And and you you as a a business owner, you as a competitor, you as an MMA fighter can see it in so many from so many uh, angles, so to speak. So, I mean, yes. I, I think that's great, you know, that you're able to, to get that from different, uh, perspective. Sure, man. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. It's been, a, it's been a great experience. And I consider myself very, very lucky to have been at the right place at the right time. 
in many of these situations. Like, did I do all the work? 1000%. Like I put in so much work to make my dreams possible, but I'm not going to discount the fact that I got exceptionally lucky in where I found myself at different points in my career to allow me, you know, the opportunities that I have had to let all that hard work shine through. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And like, and that old saying goes like when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. So sure, sure. I know you, you've done a lot with jujitsu, but how did you, how did MMA come about? Was that always your goal? No, see, it's interesting because you said, you were asking me before about my origins and stuff. And dude, I didn't even know what UFC was. Like the first, my, my first opinion of that, like when I watch it is like, it's gotta be fake. Like it's not real. You know, I didn't, I had no perspective because I was pretty much raised by my mother and my sister. You know, those were pretty much who was in the house. I had no male influence to be like, yo, you should put on a boxing match or like anything like that. So I didn't even know that world right. until I was introduced to jujitsu. So no, honestly, fighting was not my main goal from the beginning. I would say that I did want to know how to defend myself. That was a big concern. Like when I first started training, like I wasn't necessarily right away just focused on competition. Like a big part of the reason I was doing jujitsu was, hey, like I don't, I don't want a bully to have power over me. Like I want to be able to fucking defend myself and feel comfortable walking around in my shoes wherever I go. So I took that you know, to heart when I was training as well. So I trained like a lot in, a, in like a self-defense sort of way right. where I was, you know, like for instance, working on takedowns and wrestling and things, things that like nobody was really that concerned with in jujitsu because it wasn't winning you competition. But anyway, to, to continue to talk like where I was, how I headed towards MMA, that healthy desire to like want to be able to defend myself kind of started to convert as I started to move towards, as I started to move towards uh, like, later years of, of competition and stuff when Tom finally started doing uh, fighting. So when he like committed to starting to do MMA fighting instead of just competitive jujitsu, uh, he kind of started at the local level. I want to say he was fighting ring of combat. When he decided to make that transition, he was doing a lot of MMA training. And like, I kind of was following in his footsteps. You know what I mean? So everything that he was doing, I'm like, okay, like if he's going to go out there and he's going to compete in MMA, like maybe I don't want to do it right now. Cause I did make the decision to say to myself, like, all right, I want to make sure I focus on jujitsu first. I want to get really, really good at that. Then I'm going to go try to do MMA. That was the way that they had always preached. Like Tom had always preached like, dude, you want to get good at this first. And then you'll use that as a skill to win your MMA fights. That's great. Like you don't want to try to do it all at once. You know, that was the way that that's what they preached. It's not necessarily how I feel it should necessarily be done, but that was what was told to me. And I was just listening to everything I possibly could. So then, you know, Tom was training and doing all his stuff. And I'm like, all right, well, like on top of doing the jiu-jitsu, like I want to go to a couple of these sessions. So he would host some sparring at, at Mar school. He, uh, Ricardo hosted sparring a couple of days a week for fighters and stuff. So I started attending those sessions for probably a period of about six months, but I knew nothing because we didn't take classes. Like Tom, Tom didn't have an MMA class. He would just do MMA sparring. So we would just show up and like, it was like the fucking old days when they started doing MMA where like people were just swinging haymakers at each other. It was insanity. So I had no understanding. Nobody was coaching me in boxing, kickboxing, nothing like the bet, the, any striking that I had, I threw was just whatever idea I got of how to throw a punch based off of what I had seen on TV. <laughs> you know, like there was nothing, there was no technique behind anything. And basically that, I would just that, run. That, that's what they call the Ken Shamrock techniques. Yeah, dude. <laughs> so I would just, I would just run forward and try to tackle people over and over again. I felt like I was fighting for my life. So I did get a little experience early sparring, but literally like six months. And then after a point, like Tom kindly came finally came up and said to me, he's like, dude, he's like, you're not going to fight. Right. Like not right now. And I'm like, no, you know, I want to do the jujitsu thing first. 
And he's like, okay, he's like, that's good. But like, I really don't think you should be doing all these sparring sessions and stuff like that. If you really aren't like, if you don't have the ambition to fight right now, because it's only, it's just going to take a toll on your body. It's going to take away from what you're trying to accomplish. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think I should just focus on jujitsu and not even do this, even though the sparring sessions were just for fun. So I could learn about it. I'm like, okay. Like, I'm just going to focus on this one thing and, and I'll get back to it. But it was at that moment that I had decided like, okay, my instructor's going to do fighting. Like, I also want to pursue that. And the reason I want to pursue that, uh, drawing back to my original thing, is because I wanted to be able to teach people, A, how to defend themselves and B, how to fight and not just how to do jujitsu with each other. You know, I wanted to have the experience of all of those things. You know what I mean? And I felt like by trying to do MMA eventually that it would give me that experience so that one day when I have to teach a student who wants to fight, I can teach him from the perspective of, you know, somebody throwing punches and I don't just have to teach him. I don't have to be like a dude who shows up and like only has the perspective of jiu-jitsu. You know, I can be much more well-rounded as a teacher and therefore any knowledge I transfer will be uh, better received and better used and be more meaningful. So that's kind of how I gravitated towards MMA. When I, as far as when I decided to do it, I think I had just finished competing in like my second uh, or third ADCC. And I was just kind of like, all right, like, you know, I won a bunch of EBIs. I tried to do the ADCC thing. You know, I've been competing in this. I did pretty well. I think I had gotten fourth in my third ADCC. And I'm like, you know, I, I tried to do a lot in jujitsu. Like I really focused on it. I got good, right? Like now's the time. Like if I'm going to start doing MMA, like I only have a certain amount of time left. in my career. So you may as well get started now. I think I was 26 and I'm like, all right, like that was the last ADCC. Like, I think it's time to start like worrying about fighting. And then that's, uh, that's when I did that. You know, I just started focusing on MMA and I think John wasn't sure how serious I was at first Mm. about it. I think that at first he might've, and I've never really had necessarily had this conversation. I just say this based on the questions that I, he, he asked me, but I think he was like, he was thinking like, ah, uh, maybe this guy should just stick to jujitsu because he's pretty good at it and he's making money. He's making a living. Like why fuck that up? Right. You know, cause I think John looks at that an MMA as like a very dangerous thing, you know, that you should only be involved in if you really, really, really want it. And you really want to be good at it. Not, it's not like something you just do casually. He just, he doesn't look at it like that. Mm. So, uh, finally I just like kept taking, like I was taking boxing lessons and stuff with like one of my buddies and we were doing sparring and stuff and it was pretty retarded, but we, <laughs> you know, I was trying to make some progress learning how to strike a little bit and it wasn't anything formal uh and then i was i did some like muay thai stuff too and then i finally i was like hey john i've been talking to an organization about you know signing a fight and he's like who and he, i explained to him that it's one championship and everything he's like okay like all right and then literally like a couple days later i'm like hey i signed like <laughs> i'm gonna be having a fight in three months and he's like uh okay we have some work to do <laughs> Well, that, that's an interesting route. That's an interesting route because yeah. uh, you you just went straight from you know uh, competitive jujitsu to to professional MMA fighting, and you bypassed yeah. Yeah. you bypassed all of the amateur stuff. Yeah, man, that was it was it was kind of a scary move, but at the same time. I felt like to get me amateur fights would have been so difficult and I would have been bounced around and wouldn't it, it would have been hard to get me fights and it wouldn't have been, oh, yeah. people wouldn't be showing up. They'd pull out at the last minute cause they found out who I am, you know, and all this. So they shit. see your name up there. You'd be done. Yep. Yeah. So I was like, yeah. you know what? I, it's going to be so hard to have an amateur career. And like, what's the point? It's like, I'm going to be doing the fucking pro thing anyway. Like, fuck, if I lose my first couple fights or something pro fine, you know, like I just, I, that's what I got to do to, to get experience. So I was like, ah, I guess we'll just jump straight to pro, (laughs) you know? Damn. Yeah. You you approach life the same way you approach your jujitsu. It seems like. 
<laughs> Yo, but honestly, like that's what makes Gary so exciting is just that, like you know, dude goes head first, and he's like, "Yo, just the level of like the the, the fear factor that most people have about getting deboed, right? Or yeah. you know what I'm saying, getting choked the fuck out and left in a pool of piss. Like yeah. you have none of that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like you know that's one of the things I think that most people you know really admire about you because you're like this this fucking like superhero that everybody is like, you know, wanting to learn jujitsu so that they can protect themselves or they can protect their families. But there's still this underlying, you know, current of fear. Right. But you have, you approach it like more from a competition perspective and point of view rather than a a Debo perspective. You know what I'm saying? So you you, you know what I mean by Debo, right? I don't need to explain that reference to you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I have no idea. He's too young for that. Wait, you do, Gary? Yeah, put it in. Put it in reverse. You know what Debo is, right? No, I have no idea what we're talking about right now. Holy shit, youngin! I'm about to school you real quick. Let's go. So, yo, first things first is go get your, you know, like a, like a, like some Kush, some strawberry Kush. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta light it up and spark it, right? Okay. Second, you gotta put on Friday. Okay. And then third, you'll understand what I'm saying when Debo gets out and steals the bike. <laughs> Okay. I'm not going to say nothing else. You just got, that's okay. like your homework project. Oh, man. My homework yeah, tonight. I got you. Yeah, you and, your, <laughs> you and your homies one night all watched this movie called Friday with Chris Tucker and Ice Cube. It's, okay. it's legendary. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, oh, anyway, so, I mean, that brings up your question, like, you know, concerning your striking. How is that? Oh, first of all, where is your camp? Where's your training camp? Is it still at so Everything's just done it. Everything's just done in Henzo's, man. It's really impressive, like how John kind of puts everything together um, and really has a, a, a pretty good understanding of like what's going on in the striking world as well as, you know, the grappling world. Like I've, I've, from the things I've learned from him, you know, and it's not to say that I'm sure there's not some great striking coaches out there and stuff, but I bounce around. I kind of work with a few different people and like the kind of advice that I get, man, it's not necessarily that they didn't know what they were talking about, but it was just, I think he kind of has a better understanding of the progression of things. And in the sense that like, Hey, like the first thing I might've worked with some other boxing coach Mm -hmm. was like, all right, we're just going to throw a jab for a fucking hour. And not to say that you don't need to do that. Don't get me wrong. Like you, you have to learn how to throw a jab at some point. Right. But like more important than that, like one of the things we first started with at Danaher was just literally distancing yourself. I remember one of the first practices we did was I have a guy standing in front of me and every time he takes a step forward, I take a step back. Every time he takes a step to the side, I I take a step and I mirror him. Like just learning how to keep that safe step distance where somebody's not going to be able to fucking, you know, hit you and you can back up if you want, if you don't want to get hit. Right. You know, kind of how to stay safe. So like a simple thing like that is so much more valuable to somebody who's just starting to learn how to strike than like having them throw a jab for an hour. And that in my personal opinion, because you could take elements like that and like elements like, hey, like when you're in the distance where somebody can hit you, you start moving your head. Right. Things like that that like keep you safe. Like yeah. that's so much more fundamentally important than the technique behind a jab at a, at a lower level, in my opinion. So to kind of get people up to speed. And what ends up happening is you get these guys who have been doing striking training for like six months or a year that like it did jujitsu or something like that. And all they've been doing is throwing a one, two into the mitts, you know, and not really fucking sparring all the time. Um, which is another thing that we do. We spar every fucking day, you know, and I use really good sparring partners that aren't going to try to knock my fucking head off and I'm good, man. You know, I don't have headaches. I've, I've, maybe had a flash knockout one time because somebody accidentally need me in the head. 
but like, dude, I, I'm doing great with that. And it makes me have to react to real punches and have to learn how to defend real punches. So I just was able to pick things up really quick because I'm just literally doing, let's see, most people probably spar twice a week. I'm doing, you know, more than three times, you know, their work rate by sparring seven days a week. And uh, you can pick up a lot of ground really fast that way. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's like nothing beats that, right? It's like you can you sure. drill all you want, but, you know, nothing like a real person coming at you and, yeah. and dealing with it. So that's yeah. great. Um, so, what, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what's up with your switching stance all the time? <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that John had encouraged me to at an early an early start point was one to not get too comfortable in just one stance. Like he, he believed that like pretty much all really high level fighters had an ability to switch stances. Um, and that that's an important thing. He didn't necessarily encourage me to switch stances all the time. He right, never told right, me right, to right. do that, but, uh, I thought you were switching I, stance because you wanted to go for a shot or something. Oh, sometimes, but it, it's, it's more to me. Switching stances has more to do with either giving me what I want or confusing you and making you not sure what you want totally. in that given situation. Makes sense. So when, when you start, and, and this is just at a low level, like when you're, you're just starting to spar with somebody, you start to realize that there's like certain things that are available to you when you're standing, you know, uh, so we would describe it as kenkiatsu and ayatsu. Uh, kenkiatsu being when you're toe-to-toe with someone, and then ayatsu being like basically a conventional versus conventional. And we describe it this way because it describes the situation instead of one person. Because otherwise you have to say like southpaw and southpaw or southpaw and orthodox, right? To describe the situation. Right. Yeah. So when you have those, the, when you're in those stances, like there's certain punches that you're going to commonly see from each of those. So the moment I change my stance, you now have to reconfigure in your brain what you're actually going to be able to throw at me Absolutely. and what kind of combinations you're going to be throwing, et cetera. So it, it's, it becomes really frustrating to people because most people just spar in one stance for a whole fight. You know what I mean? You yeah. just expect, you just stand, I either stand southpaw or orthodox from the beginning of the fight to the end of the fight. And it's really easy to start predicting people when they do that. And I wanted to be as unpredictable as possible. Yeah, so I mean, for me, your, fight, your fight with Raju was quite interesting to me because you started throwing kicks, but I don't know if you were trying to throw a kick just to throw a kick. I thought that I, I, it looked like you were th- you threw that kick so that he can catch it in order for you to go for his legs. And at one point you did. <laughs> um, I, don't know, I don't necessarily think I did that on purpose. Uh, <laughs> however, I do drill in, in terms of letting, letting him catch my kick. I mean, the second part of it was definitely on purpose. Got it. Um, in, terms of, in terms of that, basically that's something I've drilled is every time when somebody catches my kick, like what's my response going to be? Um, and usually if, if I'm going to get taken down, I want to try to get some sort of offensive position. So my, my instinct was, okay, he's caught this kick. Now I'm just going to pull myself into an Ashigurami situation. Got it. Got it. You know what I mean? Um, so I have different variations of things that I do in response to that. Um, you know, that's actually like one of the cool things that I'm starting to realize now is like, sure. In sparring, like I got guys that catch my kicks, but in my fights, nobody's going to do that. Got it. Like Raju did, but it's going to be rare because they're going to be afraid you catch my kick foreseeably. You're probably going to have to follow me down to the floor if I fall, you know, and that's nobody wants to be there. So if anybody catches it, they're just going to catch and discard. They're not going to be able to do much with it. Yeah, that was a very um, interesting but, fight because he was able to get out of your uh, leg entanglements uh, a couple of times, but you were able sure. to finish that fight with um, a rear naked choke, I believe. Yes, yes, third round. Um, I was a little nervous about that, you know, getting into the third round because, you, you know, you want to finish. You don't want to leave that shit up to the judges, you know, God forbid. Of course. You know, I don't know what, what was, you never know what's going to happen. So 
Um, I want always want to be certain that I'm going to get the finish. Like in my, I think it was a third fight. I fought this Korean guy. It was a grappler and, uh, he caught me like halfway through like in first round. And I, I don't, it wasn't that serious of a cut at all. It was just bleeding a little bit from underneath the eye. So there was no danger of them stopping the fight. But in my mind, I'm like freaking out. I'm like, okay, I'm cut. I'm like, if this bleeds too much, like I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to, they're going to call a no contest or they're going to give the fight to the other guy. I can't have it end this way. Like I can't lose because I get my fucking eye split open. So I'm freaking out a little bit and I'm asking John in the corner. I'm like, yo, how bad is it? Like, is it okay? Like, can I keep striking with this guy? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. It's fine. So as soon as he has reassured me, I'm like, all right, fuck it. You know, I'll be okay. So I've come out second round i'm i'm throwing hands with the guy you know we were we're exchanging and i feel him clip me in the same spot and it uh and it starts to bleed again and i'm like i'm not taking any fucking chances like immediately i go in for the takedown i try to guillotine him and i and i finish him with a guillotine but like yeah man that makes me those that kind of shit makes me nervous like decisions like somebody ending the fight for a cut like all that kind of stuff freaks me the hell out because i you know it's gonna hurt so much more when somebody tells you like, no, sorry, you didn't deserve to win or no, sorry, you, you know, everything you worked for is over because you, you know, you bled a little bit too much. Yeah. It's, kind of, yeah, it's like ref's, deci- it's like ref's decision and IBJ uh, uh, competition, right? <laughs> yeah. Nothing feels worse. And it's at least in jujitsu, like you can compete again very soon in fighting. You usually got to yeah. wait like three fucking months and ah, uh, man, nothing I would, I would have hated more than that. So yeah, in the third round, I really poured it on. I'm like, all right, I got to fucking submit this guy. So I, I have a question for you. And this is, I, I, I kind of know the answer, but I, you know, for our listeners, what is the difference between uh, pure jujitsu and MMA jujitsu? Oh, uh, it's a good question. So the main difference that you're going to find across the board with people that do MMA that do jujitsu and people that do jujitsu that just, just do jujitsu. The main differences you're going to see is that one person is comfortable staying in bottom positions and working and without trying to stand up. And the other group is basically in almost all bottom positions thinking about ways they can stand. Mm. That's the way that modern, at least modern MMA jujitsu is. Okay. Is bottom position. Like the floor is lava. Okay. We don't want, (laughs) we don't want to be laying down. Uh, we want to get to some top position or back up to our feet. That's pretty much the way that MMA, the MMA jiu-jitsu world works now. And it's understandable because what people are starting to see is that people can deliver some serious damage from top positions, even if you're in a closed guard, even if you're in all, you know, a half guard in any of these positions. So people are starting to see like, okay, we got to do something about this. Like I can't just lay on my back and look for an arm bar. I'm going to get my fucking face pummeled. pummeled in, right, right? Right, right. So they start to, they start to adapt to that in a way where like every time they're in a bottom position, they're always just trying to heist back up. Right. Um, so that's one major difference I would say between jujitsu and MMA jujitsu. And then across the board, you can kind of transfer that over into, Hey, anytime you're going for a submission and there's an availability for the other person to hit you, just think about that because that'd be some, somewhere in MMA jujitsu situation. You'd have to worry about, you know, can I continue to hold on to this arm bar? I'm getting elbowed in the face or right, something right, like right. that, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And your, yeah. and your debut is a perfect example of that. Cause you were raining punches yes. on that guy, that Filipino guy. Well, that and my second fight's a good example of that because I was going for those leg locks and I got into spots where the dude right. can punch me in the face. So what I did was I crossed my legs over his hip and made it very difficult for him to lean into me to hit me, right? So I put myself in a position where I could keep distance while he kept looking for his punches. Eventually he had to turn out so that I could get up safely. So these little things like that, little tweaks that you have to develop, you know, things that you would still do in jujitsu, but 
little tweaks that you got to develop to make sure that you're not taking damage while you're going for these submission holds. Got you it. know, it's the tough, the tough part about using jujitsu in MMA and that being your thing is it's awesome because it can end the fight, right? Just like a knockout punch. Yep. But what's not awesome about it is when you don't do it perfect, nothing happens. The other guy doesn't leave with any damage. His arm's fine. His leg's fine. Right. Yep. So unless it's perfect, it's basically ineffective. Whereas boxing, like, Hey dude, I might knock you out, but I might cut your face. I might, uh, I might stumble you and then get you into a better position and then TKO you or something like that. You know what I mean? So even when you're not perfect and you're not getting a perfect knockout, you're still doing damage with boxing, right? Yep. So jujitsu in MMA is, is a little different in that regard as well. So I want to switch gears and ask you a, a completely different question, but you know, it requires, um, what's the word I'm looking for? So John Danaher has been like a, a major influence in your life. And in previous, I believe, interviews, you mentioned that he talked to you and uh, a couple of your, <laughs> your friends concerning being an entertainer. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't just about being an entertainer. Basically, the, the conversation stemmed from the idea of the differences between an amateur athlete and a professional. Okay. The amateur athlete is not responsible for anything other than the competition itself. Okay. Because ultimately, if anything, you pay to show up <laughs> and it doesn't matter whether you sell tickets or not. Right. Your sport exists. You're not making any money doing it, but you know, it, it's there. That's the only responsibility you have. You just show up, you win. Right. And that's, that's all you got to worry about. Once you cross the boundary from amateur to professional, which basically just means for not, not to suggest that you guys don't know this, but some people don't understand the difference. Basically, if you're a professional at something, you just get paid to do it. That's all that means. Mm -hmm. okay, it doesn't necessarily mean you're the best in the world or anything. It just means you're going to get paid to do this. Now you have different responsibilities because it's not just your performance that night, technically, that's going to make a difference to you anymore. What, there are other things at work, like, for example, entertainment value. Okay. If I expect to continue to get paid to do that job, the only way that organization makes money is if they fill seats or more people click to view their live stream. Okay. And if I am not doing something that is going to help put people in those seats or help people click on that link to view that live stream, I am not as valuable to that organization anymore. Right. So it's not just about being the best. It's also about like, Hey, how can I generate revenue for this particular company? Is it, is that going to be because I have an exciting style and that's, what's going to put people in the seat? Like whenever I go out there and compete, I do so in an exciting way and people want to watch it. Is that how I'm going to do it? You know, for instance, you could say somebody like an Anderson Silva, for instance, would be a great example of that. He's just so technically proficient. It's so beautiful that you're going to fill seats every single time that that dude has a fight for the most part, because you know, he's just so good. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's so beautiful to watch. Okay. So that's a good example there. Or is the reason that I'm going to fill the seats because I'm a talker, because before this fight, I made you feel like there was a lot of drama involved. I talked about your mother. Okay. I talked about your father. <laughs> I said every terrible thing that I could possibly say about you. And it's clear. I don't like you and we're coming for blood. Okay. If I create that dramatic experience for you, that may make you choose to watch the, watch the live stream because now there's a story behind it. It's almost like, um, it's almost like an investment, like a bet, right? Like if I was to go bet on a fight, I'm more intrigued. I'm more excited to watch the fight because I have something riding on it. Right. So the drama that's drummed up before a fight is very similar, right? Like in, in that same regard, you made that emotional investment that you're trying to get a payoff for 
you're trying to get that catharsis that like, Oh man, what's going to happen. These two guys hate each other. Who's going to win. Who's going to be the victor. Who's going to, how, how is this dispute going to be settled? Right. And that's helping you fill seats. So the same sort of thing, or just having a persona that people are interested in intrigued with is another example. Okay. So Chael Sonnen did both of those things. He had an incredible persona that people thought was funny, but he also was a shit talker. Right. So he filled the seats with the drama, but also filled the seats. He just, he was a character. He was a funny dude. He said like a a lot of funny things that were seemed to be ridiculous. Okay. It wasn't just, you know, trying to convince you everybody that he hated the person he was, he was fighting to create drama. He was also saying very, you know, funny, intelligent things about, you know, them, et cetera, and created that character and that filled seat that got people. So giving you all these examples, I explained to you ways to be a successful professional outside of being a successful amateur. Right. So that's the kind of conversation that we had. He basically said, listen, guys, you're moving into the professional realm now. Understand that not just your performance that matters. There's other things that are going on here that will determine how successful you are as an athlete. Yeah. I mean, McGregor is a perfect example, right? He he knows how to sell tickets and he knows how to create emotional uh, uh, responses from people. So which which and Mayweather's, uh, I guess, in, in my in my opinion, he pretty much took Mayweather's playbook and just ran with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, um, absolutely, man. One more question as far as, uh, life is concerned. Uh, you, you mentioned in a, in a previous, uh, conversation, it's just like Costa Rica and Thailand. Are you, uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> what, what about Costa Rica and Thailand? Well, you mentioned that. You I, know, I've said many things about those two places. <laughs> well, that's good. Cause I'm going to ask you uh, uh, one more question after that. Uh, okay, concerning, okay. concerning Costa Rica and Thailand, which is like, you know, when, when, when you mentioned that if people are deciding to like give up on life, you know, you should go to yes. Thailand. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So a few different things. Yeah. Right before you say like, but if there's anybody out there, listen, suicide is a serious thing. I get it. You know, I do think you can make jokes about it because I think you can make jokes about everything. But, uh, you know, if there's people out there and they're thinking, oh man, like it's just too hard. Like I can't deal with it anymore. Here's what I recommend you do before you do anything else. Take like a thousand bucks or even less. You probably don't even need that much. All right. Get yourself out to Thailand, get yourself out to Costa Rica, find a way. Maybe you got to, maybe you got to hitchhike the whole way there. I don't know. Maybe you got to swim. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure how you get yourself there, but you spend the week in those places. You need to be like, wow, man, life can be different. Like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not all that bad. You know, life goes on. You know, you could always just restart in one of those places, whatever you've done, whatever terrible things that you think you think you're responsible for. You could just have a whole new life over there. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And you some you see some people out in those places doing it too, man. You'll go to the club and you'll see like some you know fifty eight year old man dancing with a stripper, and you're just like you're like that dude's got it figured out. Well, at least that's what I say. I'm like that's those are the shoes I want to fill one day, you know. So yeah, so I mean, I want to expand on that a little bit more because I feel as if like um, you know being an athlete sometimes you're you're just like constantly on the grind and, and people that work, uh, you know, normal jobs is constantly on the grind and they don't really see a different path or a, an opportunity to like get out of their, I guess, um, rat or their mouse uh, wheel, so to speak. So what gave you that insight that, you know, maybe you should travel and see different parts of the world and, you know, life isn't so bad over here. 
Yeah, good question. So um, I don't know if I ever like made a, a hard decision that that's something that I wanted in life. I don't think I ever like, I don't think there was ever a time in school where I was like, I'm going to go travel and see the world. Like, I don't think that was ever, it wasn't a conscious choice that I made. It was just like, Hey, here's this sport that I'm deciding I'm going to be, you know, I would attempt to get really good at and that, you know, I want to make my life and, Oh, look, it's taking me to California. Oh, well, look, it's taking me to, uh, what was the first ADC China? You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's taking me to all these places and like, uh, or Sao Paulo or whatever. And it's like, Oh, all of a sudden I'm traveling the world. And then, you know, one championship I signed with them. And all of a sudden I'm, tr- I'm going everywhere in Asia and I'm yep. seeing all these Asian countries that I never would have traveled. Forget. Okay. Even if I was wrong at some point in high school, I, I was thinking, Oh yeah, I'm going to go, you know, travel and see, you know, different places. I promise you Asia was not on that list. Not because I don't, not because I don't like the idea of Asian culture, because it's so far away, man. Like a twenty-hour flight, it's incredible. Like, like, dude, I would never be going out there without having a reason. Right. Like, I want to sit on a plane for twenty-four hours. It's crazy talk. So, um, you know, had it not been for one championship, I never would have got to see these parts of the world. And then I'll have one. I'll add one little thing to the end of of what I'm saying here, and just to say that even though it wasn't my plan, I did get to see all these different parts of the world. I got to see different parts of the United States. So they do seminars all over the U.S. I got to see different parts of the world, all these different countries. I will say this, that I truly believe that the people in this world that have the strongest opinions about other countries and different nationalities and all these different things, those are the people that have never left their own goddamn backyard. Because when you go travel to some of these places that you know I've been to in these different countries and you see the way these people are living their life, man, you just start to realize like these are there are so many different people doing things so many different ways and they're they find a way to be successful and happy in life. And like, man, just because it's not the same as you and it's not a direct reflection of what you do doesn't mean that this person doesn't deserve, you know, happiness and doesn't deserve like, you know, what they have and everything. Yep. And I just kind of feel like a lot of people a lot of people that haven't experienced that, it's so easy for them to just assume that, you know, oh, the U.S. is the best place on the planet to be, you know, for instance. And, and that's just kind of like what's taught to us as kids to be like, this is the greatest country ever. And don't get me wrong. I love the United States. I rep them. You see me, you know, oh, yeah. competing in you know, U.S. rash guards all the time. This is my country. These are my people. OK, don't get me wrong. But one and the same. Uh, I do have to say that like, you know, I don't take for granted that, you know, people that grow up in, in different countries, like, you know, that I don't respect them or that I don't, you know, you know, feel the same way as human beings about them as I do as other human beings in my country, you know? Yep. So I just think, I think if uh, with a little bit of more traveling, I think people will gain a different perspective before they start talking shit on other countries and stuff, you know? And what was your favorite country that you visited? Uh, favorite country. That's, that's kind of tough. Uh, I would say... If I have to pick one, I would go with Singapore. Singapore is kind of like a a like updated version of what you would imagine New York City should look like. You know, really? like it's it's kind of like they a bunch of rich guys like kind of got into a pissing contest and started bu- building the most biggest <laughs> beautiful buildings you could ever wrap your head around. And uh, everything is much cleaner. You know, they do a, do a much better job by keeping main maintenance of everything, and and people just are a lot not, like act nicer and things like I, I really I really just uh, I like it as a country I think it's structured very well you know I think it's a little different it's a little harsh they got some tough penalties for certain things out there in Singapore 
<laughs> you know, very simple things that, that we don't, we wouldn't even think are a crime in some states now, you know, like uh, marijuana and stuff, dude, you, you have that on your person in Singapore and you're, you're in big trouble. Right, right. So, um, you know, they're, they're talking about like prison for life or possible killing, you know, yes. for, for drug trafficking there, you know, so they, they take things, certain things super serious. And I, you know, I don't necessarily agree with policies like that, but as a place to visit, super, super cool. Really enjoy it. Nice. Nice. So, uh, I have one last so, question. So for guys, you. I, ju- I just, uh, yeah. So baby girl's finally asleep. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm back. All right. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Okay, Thank so let me just much. ask this one last question for Gary. Uh, so Gary, this is the Ratchet Dojo. So I know for a fact that being an athlete and now you are an MMA fighter, y- you've traveled the world. Can you tell us one ratchet ass story? Ratchet ass story. <laughs> Damn. Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. So I don't. Huh. I don't know if. I don't know if it's definitely, it's definitely not the most ratchet ass story I could possibly tell. I think, I don't know. I'm good. I'm, it's the first thing that came to my mind. So I'm just going to shoot. So we were in, we were in South Korea and we were trying to pick up these chicks at the bar. Okay. So I'm in South Korea for, for a fight. Uh, I'm trying to corner this guy, Ryan Benoit, uh, in a fight and, you know, leading up to it, you know, you're in South Korea, like I'm in another country and, like, I know, I, I know what my responsibilities are. Like I got to train and corner this guy, you know, every day, but outside of those responsibilities, like I'm going to try to make the most of being in South Korea. Like how often do you get to be there? Right. So we're going out, we're trying to meet chicks and I'm here there with my sparring partner, Yuting. And we go to this one bar and we're using Google translate. They have like, they don't understand any English. So literally everything we say is just through the phone. And we get these two chicks who seem like they're kind of interested, you know? I don't really know what they look like, but I knew they were female. So great. Uh, (laughs) I wasn't wearing, I wasn't wearing my glasses, you know, I was drinking a little bit, you know, whatever. They look female enough to me. So, (laughs) so anyway, you know, the U-Ting was there too. So you got to, you know, it's, it's like getting a second opinion. It's like U-Ting, you think there's a dude? So, uh, (laughs) and he's like, no, I think there's chicks. So uh, he had his glasses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so we take these, we, we start walking to a different bar with these two chicks, right? Now, I had seen uh, earlier in the night, I had seen this dude kind of hammered. Like, he definitely had too much. And he was trying to dance with a chick, and he wasn't being super weird. Like, he wasn't like grabbing her and stuff in like inappropriate ways, but he was kind of just trying to dance, you know, next to her and on her a little bit, you know? And she wasn't having it, right? But he didn't understand the signals. And you could tell, like, oh my God, this fucking retard's going to get his face punched in or something by this chick. But anyway, you know, she just kind of like finds another area of the bar and leaves him alone. So I just kept my eye on him because I was like, ah, this is an erratic motherfucker. Because I'm always, I'm a, I got my wits about me at all times. You know, if I see this guy, I'm like, okay, he could be a problem later. Keep your eye on him. So I keep my eye on him and I, I you know, we walk out of the bar and, and, you know, now I'm not really thinking about him because I'm thinking he's staying in the bar. Right. So I don't know if they followed us out or if maybe, uh, they just kind of were trailing behind a little bit and they were on their way to another place as well. But him and a bunch of his boys are behind us. And I didn't know this. I didn't know this until uh, later. So we go to stop at the edge of the road and we're about to go to like whatever the next place is with these chicks. Hopefully, who knows? I have no idea what the fuck we've been saying in Korean. So, (laughs) so yeah, I have no fucking idea. So I turn around and, uh, or sorry, no, I didn't turn around yet. I got bumped into by one of these guys. But when I say bumped into, it was like, 
man, they really barreled into me. Like it, it kind of almost felt intentional. Like it almost felt like, dude, this motherfucker like really just tried to fucking step on me like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of go like, wow, what the fuck? Like I wasn't even mad really. I was just like surprised with the, with what just happened. So I was like, wow, what the fuck? I didn't yell at the guy. I didn't like say something to him, like directed at him. And I started to talk to you, Ting, because I didn't even think anything of it. Like I wasn't going to engage with a dude for bumping into me. I'm not the guy that starts a fight with you because you spill your beer on me. I don't give a fuck. Whatever. Let's have a good time. Hopefully get laid. I don't like a fight is probably going to get in my way of getting laid later that night. So I'm not looking to do that. So uh, anyway, he barrels past me. I'm like, what the fuck? And I just turned to my friends and he, he starts freaking out. I don't know. I don't think he understood a lick of English, but he understood the word fuck. Okay. He just kept yelling, fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> and he's getting in my face. And I'm like, wow, this is super weird. I can't talk him down. Like I can't be diplomatic about it because he doesn't understand English. So I just kind of stayed silent. I didn't even know what to do. I stayed silent. and I actually smiled. Because I'm just like, what am I really going to do here? So I'm looking at this guy. He's screaming and yell, waving his hands in the air. And he's yelling fuck. And he's got his two other friends with him or whatever who are like kind of trying to hold him back. And the girl that I'm with is standing right next to me. And she starts yelling at this motherfucker in Korean. She like jumps in front of me. She's like, blah, 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 blah. And the guy doesn't think twice. Like as soon as she starts like kind of opening her mouth and yelling, I don't know what she said. I have no idea. I don't know any, any Korean. But as soon as she opened her mouth, he fucking just raises his hand and I see what's going to happen. He's going to crack her. Right. So mid slap, like he hasn't even finished the slap, the motion yet. My hand immediately extended because I I don't know my body just, that's my response. Like you're going to slap somebody. I'm going to slap somebody. So she, he makes contact with her face and a split second later, I make contact with his face. So it's like a double slap. Okay. Cause I knew the, I knew he was going to hit this chick and it's just like, whack. And so we both make contact. He gets knocked back. He could not be more surprised by the idea that I had hit him in the face. It's almost as if he thought by slapping that chick in the face, that was going to be the end of the confrontation. He literally thought like, oh, I'm just going to get to slap this chick in the face and then I'm going to go home. But no, he fucking slaps the chick and I slap him and he's like shocked. So he starts charging toward me, yelling in Korean. I don't know what he's saying at this point. And I just, the first thing I do, because he doesn't raise his hand to hit me. He just walks towards me. His hands are down at his waist. So he's like sprinting at me. So as soon as he comes close enough, I just grab his jacket and I kick both of his legs out from underneath him. Okay. By the way, this is the only street fight I've ever had my whole life <laughs> at 28 years old in fucking South Korea. How does that happen? Right. How does that happen? Who the been fuck been training your whole life for that. Yeah, my no whole applause. life. This is the no first applause. time I get in a confrontation. I didn't even, I don't even, didn't even speak Korean, and somehow I got into a fight with a motherfucker. <laughs> and so anyway, I sweep this guy onto his fucking neck, like literally just kick his legs out from underneath him. He falls on his head and shoulders. Okay, not in like a, not in like a concussion kind of way. He landed mostly on his shoulders, so it was just like a hard fall. Okay, not like he cracked his skull or anything like that. Thank God. So he lands and his two other buddies are not happy. Okay. So these, these guys start charging over as he lands. Another dude grabs the back of my jacket. So I can't see him cause I'm still facing the guy that I just swept. He grabs my jacket and he pulls me down to the ground. Okay. So I got like pulled from behind and I fell off balance. So as I fall to the ground, I'm facing him. I, I get into like an Ashigurami type position and I just push on his hips and, and grab onto both of his feet and knock him down. It's just like a basic Ashi sweep. So he falls on his ass. I stand back up. So now there's two guys I'm assuming are down, but at least one. So I get back up and I'm surveying the area. My buddy, Yu Ting, has literally got 
this fucking dude pinned up against the car in a Russian tie. He's like talking in the guy's ear. I don't know what the fuck he's saying because he doesn't understand English and Yuting doesn't know how to speak speak Korean. So he's literally holding this guy just like whispering in his ear. So I'm like, all right, Yuting's got that guy covered. But then I see the original guy that I knocked on the floor. He's still on the floor and he's holding the chick, the chick that he slapped. He's holding her by the hair. Now, the way I interpreted that at first was like, no way, this motherfucker is really still attacking this chick after I just swept him onto his neck. Like, doesn't he realize he's outclassed here? Right? Yeah. Like, how is this? How is he? He really is that insistent upon trying to beat this chick. I'm like, wow. So I'm ready to walk over and literally kick this guy's head off of his shoulders. Okay. While he's, <laughs> while he's on the ground. Cause I'm like, dude, he's really going to go out of his way to hit this chick. Fine. Uh, he's, he dies. You know, this is what he deserves. So as I walk over, I'm thinking to myself, I take a few steps and I go, oh man, bad idea, Gary. You can't kick a guy's head off his shoulders. You're in fucking South Korea. You're going to go to jail for the rest of your life. You cannot do that. So I I rethink it and I'm like, okay, you can't kick him. What could you do? That's not going to get you jail for life. So I go up behind him and I strangle him because he's still on the ground. He's holding this chick by the hair. So I go in and put an arm around his neck and uh, I'm about to strangle him and I see his other friends start to walk over. And I'm like, all right, if I keep the strangle here, this guy's probably going to like kick me in the back of the fucking head. You know, I'm, you know, I'm gonna have to deal with that while I'm trying to strangle this guy. And if he does see him go unconscious, it's probably not going to go too well. Anyway, he's going to think his friend's dead. So I'm like, all right, forget it. I'm not going to strangle him. I let, I let go of the dude and I just start prying his hand off of the chick's hair. Cause I'm like, all right. And I just trying to pry his hands off the chick's hair. I don't think the other guy's going to get involved. So I start prying his hands, hands off of her hair or whatever. And I fucking shove him back. We're all yelling at each other again for a little while, but then they kind of like disengage. Now the two chicks that were with us were livid. And now I understand obviously because the one got slapped and then pulled her hair, got her hair pulled and shit. So, but they're not, they don't want to end this fucking fight. They still think the fucking fight is on. And I'm like, dude, no, like this needs to end. So me and you think have to like grab these chicks and pull them away from these dudes. Cause they just want to keep brawling, you know, but they don't have an ability to brawl, you know, it's just, just like open hand slapping these dudes. So we, we grab them, we yank them back and we finally separate them from the experience. But it was all super traumatic, especially for the chicks. So, um, you know, at least we've been in fights, you know, at simulated fighting before, you know, me and you think so. So now, of course, me and Yuting are also hoping to ourselves that maybe we'll get laid out of this experience. Like we send it off to our <laughs> We send it off to the attackers. Like it's time to fucking reach the rewards. You know, like fuck. Gotta, gotta get something out of this shit, right? We're hoping, you know? So, so we're like, oh, my, my lady, we will try to make sure we have safe passage home. You know, we will, we will ride in the cab with you back to your house, right? So I, we post that in the, in the, the, Kore- the Korean app or whatever, the Google Translate. In. And um, so they, they get the picture. We get all get in the cab together. Now, what was weird was we went a very short distance. So we drove like maybe like three or four blocks. So I was so confused. I'm like, wait, like, why did we get in a cab? If they're so, they live so close. Well, that wasn't why they had gotten out. That was not why they stopped the cab. So what I realized as we get out of the cab is there's a pool of water in the front seat where the one was sitting and in the back seat where the one was sitting, but it was not water. It was fucking urine, dude. They pissed themselves. They pissed themselves in the fucking taxi and the taxi driver is screaming at us. He's like, fuck you, fucking this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, I like throw the taxi driver like a fucking 20. And I'm like, here you go, buddy. See you later. And uh, he fucking drives off. Now, I thought that was the end of it. I was wrong. 
I see the one girl, she's squatting down, like in the position where you, you know, like chicks usually pull their pants down. They have to, they keep a deep squat, right? When they piss. So she's in the squatting position, but she didn't pull her pants down. She's literally just pissing her pants in the squatted position on the side of the road. And me and you Taylor are watching this and we're like, all right, we're out. We're like, we like wave to the, we like wave to the chicks and we're like, see you later. Yeah, like, we just fucking that. walk away. I'm like, nope. I'm like, that's, that's crossing the line. I don't think we're getting lucky tonight, buddy. Yo, Gary, but from the back, it wouldn't have mattered though. <laughs> just joking, just joking, just joking. Oh, right. So, so, so about the question that I that I uh, sent to you in a text, right? So I, I sent the move uh, question to you about you know Bigfoot, you know Bigfoot, <laughs> right? Bigfoot. So Bigfoot. the question is, do you think that he has a human penis or one of those like <laughs> red rocket penises like dogs? <laughs> This is a really good question. You're a cerebral guy. I know you've thought about this. This is like the question that's plaguing me. Yeah, yeah. Rocket penis or a human penis? Yeah, it's a good point. I I think it's more it's more like a horse penis. You know, that's like kind I think, of a rocket. Yeah, I think yeah, kind of a it's kind of like a rocket penis. Yeah, I think yeah, like, like yeah, a yeah. big, but a big old rocket penis for sure. <laughs> you know, it's Bigfoot, man. He's got, you can't have it something little. There's no way. He's packing. Bigfoot's packing for sure. Oh man, you got an Orlando penis. No, but seriously, man, I, I you know, I, I, I thank you for taking the time. I mean, like yeah. I said, you're you're like the Ryan Hall of like Hensels, right? And, uh-huh. you know, when I think of genius, like, and, and I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, like, you know, when I think of Ryan Hall, I think of him as like this engineer type dude who's come and made certain elements exciting when, you know, created a lane that, that people didn't think was there. And that's how I think of you, right? Like you do the same shit. You make shit exciting when like, you know, no one else can. Every fight that I've ever seen you in from Paul Harris to, you know, um, you know, anybody from team from Lloyd Irvin or, you know, any of the other folks that in Abu Dhabi or any of the other fights, like, dude, you find a way to make shit exciting, whether it be on social media or in real life. It's fucking amazing to watch. And anyway, kudos to you, man. I'm, I'm, I'm in awe. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah. He's a very dynamic person. Uh, with that said, um, do you have any last words, Gary, to, uh, to your fans? Uh, yeah, man, I guess, uh, you know, just anybody that is already supporting me, thanks so much for the support and anybody that, you know, is hearing this for the first time and being introduced to me, you know, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard, you know, if not, no problem. You know, there's always, uh, there's always, uh, you know, Dylan Danis, I guess. So you have that, <laughs> you have that as an option. So you know, <laughs> different, different strokes for different folks. So, um, no, man, you know, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Um, you know, as far as like just a general message to everybody, you know, best of luck to everybody in these fucking tough times, man. You know, I really feel for everybody, you know, on both sides of things, you know, whether, whether people are arguing the same thing I'm arguing, which is that we got to open up or people are arguing that, you know, everything needs to stay shut down. It doesn't matter, man. Like we're all scared for different reasons. Um, and it's, it's just, a, it's a real tough thing for, for everybody, you know, no matter what the way that, no matter which way that they think. And I really feel for, especially all those people that are out there, you know, losing their jobs and, you know, having their businesses destroyed and, and, you know, in the worst case scenario, you know, losing their houses and things and not being able to afford to, to eat, man, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a really tough thing, especially when it's, you know, imposed, 
you know, by something that's completely out of your control. So, you know, so sorry about that. And if there's anything I could do to help anybody, let me know, you know, I'd be happy to, to try to help with support. So, um, you know, I'm trying to get, get my business back on my, on its feet and I'm going to be fine You know, I'll be able to start again, but many people, it's going to be very hard for them to do that. So, you know, I just love everybody that, that, uh, that's listening and, and anybody that, that hears that message, you know, uh, just know that you're not alone, man. You know, everybody's going through a real tough time right now. You're, you're going to make it. Thank yeah, the words. humanity in that is wonderful, man. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely, man. And where can people find you, Gary? Uh, pretty much all social media. I'd say I'm most active these days on Instagram. Um, occasionally, I get, you know, a wild hair up my ass to go on Twitter for long periods of time, but I haven't really been too active over there recently. So, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty much all forms. I have a Facebook too, which I'm basically just spam posting political things now. So, uh, <laughs> anything funny, anything funny? Uh, yeah. Occasionally something yeah. about everybody having to ro- roll around in hamster balls. I'm trying to think <laughs> if there was any, any other ones that were good, but yeah, just there, some funny stuff, but most, most of it's like, uh, like I need an, I need like an outlet on one of my social medias where I can like bitch about what's going on. You know what I mean? And I felt yeah. like if I do that with all my social media, like if I do that with Instagram, like I'm just going to start to lose people. You know, that's Absolutely. not the reason people Absolutely. started following me, man. You know, they, they followed me for my personality. They followed me for, you know, my, my sport, you know, the, my abilities in the sport. And you know, I don't want to like fucking completely bombard people with just, you know, what's, what's bothering me every day. So, um, you know, get, you get a little bit more of that on my Instagram now, but, and I'm doing more bitching on Facebook. So if you want to want less bitching, go to Instagram, yeah. more bitching, go to Facebook. And that's Gary Tonin <laughs> with two R's, correct? Yeah. Gary Tonin. I think on Facebook, it's Gary Lee Tonin, you know, but yeah. you, I'm sure you'll be able to, they'll be able to find it. But yeah, two R's, T-O-N-O-N. Well, once again, thank you very much, Gary, the lion killer Tonin. Uh, thank you, uh, J-Mac for being here. Uh, yo, yo. From all of us from Ratchet Dojo, until next time, everyone right. can get a Thanks little so ratchet. Much, guys. Until next time. Peace. Peace. Peace.